Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Hi. Hi, Sally. Um, I just had a thought uh, a few minutes before. I, I'm just so excited about having Sally meet the community and the community meeting Sally. I feel like I'm kind of a, a matchmaker. I'm bringing somebody home to my family <laughs> that I love and adore. Uh, so it's that kind of feeling I have this morning. So anyway, it's it's so wonderful to have you here, Sally, and um, for you to be with us. I know it's eight in the morning, so I appreciate you um, coming so early. So today, um, as you may notice, we're doing things a little bit differently. We're not starting with a chant. Um, we are um, wanted to use this opportunity to um, have you uh, get to know Sally um, and for us to kind of share uh, out loud in front of all of you some of the kind of Dharma discussions and, uh, that we have together. And uh, also uh, to recognize that the Dharma comes in, in many different forms and that we come out of different traditions that are connected and, and uh, support and, and, and um, feed each other and, and um, and also uh, shift each other. So we're kind of, you know, Taoism uh, and and Buddhism and is is a completely um, communicative set of of um, conversations and influences. So um, what I'd like to do is first introduce Sally a little bit, and then she and I are going to talk. I'm I'm basically going to um, ask her a bunch of questions. <laughs> Uh, that I'm interested in. I had so many, and of course we have to limit it, but I wanted to first introduce you to her. So um, her official bio on her, on her, uh, her organization's uh, website is, uh, Sally is a martial artist. She's a teacher. I happen to consider her to be a teacher for me. She's an acupuncturist, a peacemaker, which I'm really interested in hearing more about Sally and founder of Evergreen Tai Chi Academy and Warriors for Peace podcast. So she has over 30 years of martial arts experience, Taoist cultivation and traditional Chinese medicine. And she uses those and distills those to help support individual and collective healing. I also consider her a very <clears throat> deep, dear Dharma sister and friend of mine. And um, just to say a little bit about how we connected, <clears throat> um, Sally is the wife of one of my dearest, oldest Dharma sisters of 20 years, Siobhan, who I think is also here. And um, so when uh, Siobhan had told me that she had met somebody very special and I went to visit and to meet Sally and to visit Siobhan and I had never seen Siobhan so content. <laughs> Something had deeply changed as a result of her meeting Sally, and, and I, I'm sure for you as well, Sally. So I remember very distinctly uh, the first time we met that we were driving from um, Oakland to San Francisco, and we were in the car together, and Siobhan had put us together to talk and get to know each other, and you immediately started telling me about your, your, your tradition and your, your practices, and I can hear as you were speaking, something just um, felt familiar and also intriguing and very settling. And I thought, I want to understand this more. And I want to I understand um, what it is that you offer. 
And so then a couple of years later, uh, you were kind enough to invite me to help do the Zen part of a couple of workshops, uh, Tai Chi Qigong workshops at Tafahara, where I got introduced to the forum. In fact, it, I think we did the forum that we'll be doing this month at Brooklyn, uh, Master Chi, and I just fell in love with this forum. It was so beautiful. And what I realized is that as I was experiencing the form by the way you were teaching it to me, that I could, I could feel the depth of the tradition behind you and within you. And I could immediately recognize, um, and I did, you know, this is maybe six years ago, that for 15 years, something was missing in my Zen practice. And it felt like this, this is integral for me um, in order in order for me to continue on my practice path. So there's something about it, you know, which I won't go into the, the felt experience of why it feels so um, powerful as a compliment, you could say to Zen or as accompaniment to the meditation practice. So that's the big story. And that's part, I think also of my fantasy, you know, going along with this family analogy of just this fantasy of, of we had talked about, and I hope one day for you to be able to be here in person for us to have a space where you could offer this to us in person, but to be able to finally integrate and have your, our community be exposed to, to what uh, your teachings have to offer. So, so anyway, that's my intro, Sally. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Laura. It's such an honor to be here. It's an honor to meet all of you at Brooklyn Zen Center. And um, yeah, that was a beautiful recollection of our first meeting. And it's like one of those things where you just, uh, you've never met each other before, but it's like, you know each other already. Like your mm -hmm. familiar friend or family member that you just haven't seen in a couple lifetimes. <laughs> there you are again. <laughs> so there's something very close and familiar that we, um, that I think we recognized in each other straight away, just uh, two sisters, uh, similar, sometimes parallel, sometimes intersecting spiritual path. And um, we learn a lot from each other. And I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for mm -hmm. the invitation. Thanks, Sally. And, you know, we only have maybe 40 minutes. And when we have our private conversations, we, we think we're going to talk about something later. We haven't even gotten to that question we needed to answer so I'll try to really keep uh, contained because there's a few things I really would love um, for for uh, us to, to sh and to learn from you um, and um, so the first I would say is 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 about the practice itself I am a true beginner's mind there's very little I know embarrassingly so so about Taoism and uh, its relationship to Buddhism and 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 the practices specifically of Tai Chi and Qigong um, but before that you know and you know this very well because you also studied practice at San Francisco Zen Center and um, so I was thinking can you give us like a a little 10-minute way seeking mind you know what brought you to this practice and you know what is it of the circumstances perhaps of your childhood or who knows of lifetimes that brought you to the practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you for that question. I, I think that really I was, a, I was a martial artist first before I was a spiritual seeker. 
And really, it, it came from um, really wanting to find a connection with my ancestral roots. So I grew up, I was born here, my parents are Taiwanese, and I was born in America, so I'm second generation. Um, and we lived in a place that was very um, working class, white, suburban, um, East Coast, kind of Northern Virginia, D.C. area. And so we grew up in a place where I didn't really see anyone around us that lived around us or in my school for a very long time that looked like me. Mm -hmm. So the only people that looked like me were in my family. And in media, there was also a, just a non-existence of people who looked like me until I discovered the Saturday afternoon Kung Fu theater. So that was my, my entry point into martial arts, like many martial artists inspired by cinema and Bruce Lee and the Wu-Tang Clan and uh, all those uh, famous uh, old school martial artists that, um, that really, it, it really did have a huge impact on me because that was like the first time, literally the first time that I saw people um, that looked like me in like reflected back to me that weren't my family. Mm -hmm. And so they were seen as, you know, strong and powerful and, uh, you know, not, not horribly nuanced characters, <laughs> but, um, being Kung Fu theater, but, uh, it was, uh, it was a way for me to start to see myself in the world. And so literally like having never read any books in English, uh, from any Asian American authors um, until high school and not seeing anybody that looked like me on a, in a magazine or a newspaper or on a billboard. So literally, Kung Fu Theater was the only place. And so mm -hmm. I really wanted to connect and I also had a lot of energy that I didn't know what to do with. And so martial arts just seemed like an eventuality to me, like from just playing kicking and punching, playing with my sisters, to when I was finally uh, into adulthood, finding some teachers at my college that I went to, to start training hard and really finding a home there, finding community there, um, finding like a, a deep familiarity with the movements and with the practice and the discipline and focus and to get myself out of my, uh, just my thoughts, but also get into my body and get to know my body. Mm -hmm. um, get to know some, um, some rhythms and the natural design of my body. So it was a very uh, deep connector from a long time ago uh, to mm. my culture. And then um, through some uh, personal medical illnesses, I found myself on the path to, uh, with Chinese medicine. And that was a further exploration into my culture the medicinal and healing aspects of my culture. And then I discovered, um, I, I was on that path already, like uh, um, wanting to study medicine um, as a part of my own healing and self-discovery. And then I discovered through talking with my dad, he was like, oh yeah, you know, your great-grandfather and your great-great-grandfather were both doctors in their villages. They were also um, herbalists and doctors and healers uh, in their in their time, and um, so I didn't really put that together. I knew that my grandfather was a was a Western medical doctor, 
was a gynecologist. Um, but I didn't realize that the generations before were also um, mm. in service to their communities as medical practitioners. Mm. So that was like really deeply connecting to me and made me feel um, like I was on the right path and I had my ancestors behind me. Mm. And then um, through the continuance of martial arts and my medical studies, I found some Taoist teachers so um, I found my, my Taoist teacher in medicine, and then I found my Taoist teacher in Tai Chi and Qigong martial arts, um, just along the line. So it's kind of been my, my journey and how martial arts, um, which is related to the type of uh, Taoist or internal cultivation practices that I've learned, it intersects with the, Chinese, the traditional Chinese medicine that I learn and practice, um, that how all those come together is like this second generation per, you know, kid wanting to connect back with their homeland and their mm. ancestral roots and also wanting to uh, find these wisdom practices that are a part of self healing and um, self discovery. Powerful. Mm. So it's, a, it's, um, it's almost as if, you know, this kind of way seeking mind found its way back to the belonging back to, a more explicit understanding of, of what those urges have come came out of, right? And uh, and also out of it, it sounds like also out of limited circumstances, out of some suffering, right? Of a lack of of mirroring or a sense of belonging. Um, yeah, I think that's what a lot of our teachers say is that you don't usually get on this path in a deep way um, unless you're contending with something that's very potent. And that we learn through challenges as human beings, as beings on this earth, we learn and grow through challenges. And even though those challenges may not be of our choosing, I certainly wouldn't choose or wish upon others like illness or injury, but I really came out different after those really challenging situations. And they were, they're just part of my path. It just happens to be the life I got. Um, where that happens to be the way that I that I learn. It's incredibly mm -hmm. motivating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly mm -hmm. motivating to choose to um, thrive um, mm -hmm. versus choosing to wallow in in illness and victimhood. Um, mm -hmm. And and it can be very seductive to wallow in victimhood. Uh, there's a different mm -hmm. kind of power and seduction in that too so I, I very much recognize it as a as part of my human experience um, but it's also given me this deep well of resilience like that I know that I can face difficult challenges and come out the other end and I think as martial artists we we're not in it to just feel comfortable all the time you know <laughs> other other people who are physically active and are uh, into um, athletics. I can't really call myself an athlete. I'm not that mm. not that fit. But uh, you know, people who are really into you know physical fitness or challenges. It's like they're in it for for some work. There's mm -hmm. some work that is satisfying, and mm -hmm. that the body needs. Um, and so this idea that life should just be comfortable all the time, or that we or that these spiritual practices are for the purpose of finding comfort, mm -hmm. I think is, um, is a very one-dimensional point of view. 
mm-hmm. and it's okay, it's okay as a as a beginner to enter into the gateway with that point mm-hmm. of view but I don't think that it can be a sustaining nutritive kind of fuel or motivation mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because it really just misses out on like the multi-dimensional richness that these wisdom traditions have to offer if you if you're only going for comfort or being non-emotional or being stoic or um, inert in some way mm. to not feel. So I think that um, Taoism, martial arts, um, I think Zen can have this sort of exterior presentation of just being stoic and non-feeling. Um, mm. but, I, but I think that that's the opposite of what these traditions are teaching in my experience, you know, as a student. Mm. Um, mm. I think that these experiences are to fulfill our to to guide us to our our whole being our whole Mm. experience not just preferred experiences but our entire experience as time is progressing on Mm. you know sally when you were talking it it made so many connections were getting made for me and one of the things i was thinking about which we can get to in a little bit um but i want to refer to it you had told me, you know, I've listened to Resma Medicum and a few different situations, and you told me about the podcast with, with Sally Wong, and I just listened to it, and and he talked very much about this idea of reps, right? The reps, that yeah. The reps, you know, that 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 we're rep- we're we're building a nervous system that has the capacity to meet pain, harm, injustice, violence in a way in which we don't lose our, we don't lose our stability, you know, and, um, and, you know, doing the, um, you know, entering into, uh, you know, as a beginner into the the practice of Qigong and listening to you, there is something that you can feel that's very resonant for me about the way, hopefully, ideally we practice then, which has to do with a discipline that comes out of gentleness. You know, that there's some, there's some, there's some way in which those two, we, we say, I think at the beginning of the sheet, you know, find the middle way between, you know, discipline and ease, you know, I mean, I think there's an ease in the discipline, but I, but I think, you know, this idea of we have to make some effort to overcome our conditioning to, you know, there's a momentum as Angel says to this conditioning and how do mm. we create a counter force that isn't, like you said, a, a kind of stoicism or rigidity or tightening in our bodies, but a fluidity and a strength, right? And so many of the images that, that, that is used in the Qigong practices kind of from nature can, can get us in contact yeah. with that. Yeah. 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 I, I agree. Um, uh, yeah. That, uh, uh, that, Instagram live, I think you're referring to Rosma Menicum speaking with Jenny Wong, who's a psychotherapist in, in um, Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, really worth watching if you all can, can find it on Instagram, uh, Jenny Wong. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he has spoken, he's spoken about uh, repetitions. And, and I know that in his own history, he's, he's studied uh, combat arts and uh, martial arts as well. And so this language, uh, I think, is is very, you know, comes from a kind of practice. And he also served uh, in the in Afghanistan in combat areas. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the kind of the disciplines that I find uh, in these practices like create a 
mental toughness um, just through uh, through practice of a of a form, and mm -hmm. it creates like a physical toughness as well, like a and and a spiritual one, mm -hmm. so that we can find a way back to our balances, our felt centers, our embodied felt centers. Um, when we're talking embodied arts or meditation in motion, that uh, we are challenged in many different ways, but the, and the forms and the disciplines and the repetition of practice help to program our autonomic system so that we have a, have a very well-worn um, pathway back to our center. So we're gonna be thrown off center. We're gonna be in confrontations. We're going to be unbalanced. That's just, that's just living life. Mm -hmm. So do we have a way back home, home to ourselves, to the place in ourselves where we belong to ourselves, we belong to this earth, we belong to our ancestry, and that it's not based on externals to define who mm -hmm. we are. So these practices point the way to our inner knowing mm -hmm. of this. But the rituals and the forms and the practices um, are not in themselves um, the sacredness. Mm -hmm. right? I think that the rituals, the forms, the practices, uh, the costumes, the get-up, <laughs> the hairstyles, the malas, you know, all of those are reminders for us to practice, they, they're reminders, the sutras, the mantras are reminders that generate a kind of resonance or a vibration in mm -hmm. our beings that mm -hmm. is somatic, that's beyond language, it's beyond um, written text, it's beyond um, cognit cognition, consciousness, um, but it goes pre-verbal into this deep primal knowing mm -hmm. of of our evolutionary path that we there's a lot of life that has been developed to get us to this point where we're living in this body in this moment in time so that we don't have to recreate everything we don't have to manufacture things from um zero at all times you know we we tend to have a very narrow focus in our minds of um of our existence, we can be very uh, egocentric and, and very narrow-minded in our influence upon the world. But if we understand that we come from a lot of life, and that everything that we do influences a furthering, mm -hmm. a further expression of life, then we understand that we have an impact on this world, whether we're conscious or not. Mm -hmm. So what's our responsibility? We have a responsibility to heighten our consciousness and to understand our interconnectedness. Um, and then that brings us back to the principles of mm. our responsibility of living on this earth, in this body, and mm. stewarding this body and this life and stewarding where we reside and our relationships. You know, yesterday, I um, thank you so much for that. And like, as you're speaking, I keep thinking, as you're talking, I keep thinking about the practices, you know, <laughs> and uh, yesterday, I was, I was, uh, you know, looking at those, um, the uh, remembering some of those movements that uh, I, you taught us. 
And one of them, I, I can't remember what the name, I think it's, it may not be washing Buddha's ears, but it's something like that, you know, like where. Oh yeah. From Master the, Lee's. Yes. From Master Lee's. What's the name of that um, form called? The washing Buddha's ears, maybe, or <laughs> yeah, I'm going blank as well. We're sharing in our blankness. <laughs> <laughs> but what I wanted to, but when you were speaking, I was thinking you had said something about about listening, hmm. and when you were talking about and moving the body down, moving the chi down, and and hearing and listening with these big ears, you know, and it's that right. It's like listening with the body, listening with all the senses, listening to right, our environment to what's being asked of us, what's being expressed, to what's activating us. And then also going down, listening to our internal energy, our internal, um, our internal um, expression or experience at the moment, right? And, and, the, and the balancing of those. And um, so uh, yeah, to me, there's some, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I describe yeah. <laughs> that's funny because I I do describe it as kind of like you're washing or massaging your your ears, and that you feel the your auditory sense all over your body, like you've got giant Buddha's ears that go from head to foot, and that you're like a you're like a satellite dish. You're receiving, sending and receiving information, and mm. you're almost like you're combing the pathways in your body that you're removing the static so that the signal is more clear you're sending and receiving your perceiving is more and more clear um so that's mm. that's what that uh, particular phrase in master Li's qigong uh, mm. kind of wakes up in me to listen with your entire being mm. yeah yeah, and you know, this is, I think, um, for us, this feels very familiar, very resonant, you know, as we mm-hmm. sit in meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there's something about the movement itself that feels as if it enhances that capacity mm-hmm. to be embodiment, to be a body in the world, in connection, in relationship. Um, yeah, how is so, that for you yeah. as a practitioner? Because you've spent mm-hmm. so many years in uh, in sitting meditation. You have so many clocks, so many hours. You know, you just uh, yeah. in sitting meditation. What's the difference mm-hmm. for you? But you know, how is it complementary? Like z- sitting zazen and then and doing qigong that is more active, mm-hmm. moving meditation. Yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, I. I I just realized, you know, the other day after doing, I just did one of your weeks um, with a, with another form. Mm-hmm. And so this, the way you teach, you know, you meet one hour, hour and 15 minutes every day for five days. And so what happens is perhaps this is the way it is for in retreats as well. Your voice is in my head, you know, mm-hmm. so <laughs> I've been <laughs> sitting <laughs> and I was sitting in a chair, you know, I've been sitting in a chair in the Zendo because I've been having some chronic back problems. So the other day I realized, you know, my, because there's so much also that you speak about, about grounding mm-hmm. into the body. And I think to, again, offset in our society and in our training and, you know, that we're up here so much. Mm-hmm. And I think sitting so many years, you can also get kind of, um, it becomes habitual when anything is habitual procedural can kind of deaden 
-hmm. you know, so there was something about the freshness of that information and the specificity and subtlety of the way you describe how to be on your feet when you're doing a form, you know, you know, on both sides, not move, you know, not, not um, being out of balance and, and feeling yourself as a tree or as a dragon or whatever it is. And so I sat in the zendo and I put my feet on the ground instead mm. of on a cushion in front of my chair. And my whole experience of Zazen was different. I felt the connectivity of the earth. I felt the groundedness. And, and then also a lot of other ways that you described bringing space in or, um, and she, you know, which I'd love for you to talk about. So there's this something about the balancing of chi that feels, you know, um, you know, we talk about the hara and bringing our awareness and our cunning, you know, having our mind almost coming from the hara. So, but there's something about the chi moving that feels very useful in terms of um, freshness and strength and ease. So mm -hmm. I wonder, so we in talking about the principles, chi is so, or, and the dantian is so much a part of the teaching that I've heard you. So if you could share a little bit about that or yeah. introduce people a little bit to the basics of what that is about. Sure. I think that what you're describing is one of the principles in Tai Chi and also in the Tao Te Ching is stillness and motion and motion and stillness that you can have both. You do have both in your experience happening simultaneously all the time but we usually have a focus on one or the other that we have to be all motion or we have to be all stillness. Mm. So I think like these, these arts, sitting meditation, standing meditation, moving meditation to bring, I, I think that they, they work together really well because they, they complement the meditative process, but they utilize the body in different ways so that there's no resting point for the mind. Like the mind can't just uh like you were saying become how did you say it just to go to sleep or uh kind of um just become uh inert in a way or uh dull Dale. yeah mm -hmm. you know because once we begin to think that we know something we we know how to do something i mean you can practice tai chi for you know 50 years and um if, if all you're doing is imitating the, the form again and again, you're going to receive benefit. You're going to receive benefit. But if you don't inhabit the form and the form is not like infused into your entire being, if you don't bring it into your life, mm -hmm. the life you're living outside of the, um, the look of your form, then, um, then there's, a, there's a big disconnect like a bridge hasn't been built to from practice in in a kind of um, space that is made for practice and then living life. Like because the, the purpose is to live life, <laughs> in my opinion, mm -hmm. is to freely live your your life as your fully realized authentic being. Um, that's the purpose is to remind us and return us home to ourselves. Um, the purpose is to me is not just in reiterating forms. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. Right. That's just like, you can just keep putting on your costume mm -hmm. or your robe, um, but not really inhabit it with spirit and not inhabit it with who you are. I think there's a, there, there would be something missing there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Right. That's the always expression. Else. Yeah. Always something external. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. What was, uh, I, I, I was just thinking of, you know, I lost that... the original question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. I was just thinking when you were saying inhabiting yourself and, and making it your own, right. That we have this famous expression when you are you, then is them, right. When you, mm. you know, that is that, that spontaneous, authentic, aliveness right that mm. um can get lost in and and dulled even you know living in a monastic life and and doing these profound rituals and spiritual uh, practices you know something is happening i think all the time that isn't lost but our relationship to it may need to be infused with um with some energy right or yeah and purpose and, and my, purpose. my teacher would say you know you can you can live the Taoist hermit can live on the mountain for years and years and become an expert in whatever it is they're practicing and then come down off the mountain into the village and then all their practice goes out the window. <laughs> Lose yeah. their temper, expect yeah. others to behave in a certain way, the food doesn't taste right or, the, you know, the water's yeah. dirty or, the, you know, whatever. Yeah. Whatever yeah. The, the judgments happen when we're in relationship, get challenged. But when we're mm. in solo practice or just in, in our minds, we can get really, um, we can just get very dull in our mind yeah. through lack of stimulation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Um, we, we are less creative when mm. we're not in relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, that's critical, right? Sangha is critical. And this is, I think, critical. the experience you just mentioned is what most people feel every time they get off the cushion during a sashim. Like I am just blissed out and everything's wonderful until they get up. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I could see how quickly things are going. And I really want to circle back just to touch in uh, with the um, to sense a little bit about the tradition that's underneath these practices and, and really tying this into some of the conversations we've had about what happens when uh, a practice or a tradition gets um, taken up or you could say appropriated or assimilated into another culture and then extricated mm. right from its from its lineage from its tradition from its from its cultural inheritance um, and you know I, I was just reading a little bit about Taoism and so this idea of you know of of these practices being purely medicinal or you know just something you can grab for longevity without being connected right, to a whole, a whole tradition, a whole set of context and historical circumstances and indigenous roots and so forth, right? Same thing yeah. we, we talked about in Buddhism, same thing, right? Um, mm. And, and, uh, and getting uh, appropriated and then not, you know, dishonoring, mm. you know, um, and uh, really, who we have to honor and respect and, and pay attention to and, uh, and treat with respect these traditions, even as we're changing them, right? So I know you are also challenging and changing yeah. uh, or, or widening. So I just wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah. A lot of, of passion that's, about this. It's <laughs> a huge topic. We can spend a long time talking about that. And we should. You know, this is something that should be discussed in in our communities as we uh, reckon with um, the themes um, that are alive in this moment, um, cultural appropriation, um, 
extraction, colonialism, because we, we live in these times where um, there are certain behaviors that are systemic, but they feel normative. So colonialism, that which one power goes to overtake, usually through military imperialism, uh, another culture to extract its resources, um, you know, often without any sort of reciprocity, right? Reciprocity is not the, <laughs> is not the underlying value there. Mm-hmm. Capitalism as well, you know, monetizing, commodifying people, labor, land, resources, and that includes culture. It includes philosophy, it includes religion, it includes um, symbols and artworks. So all of, all of these are uh, capitalism, colonialism, uh, patriarchy, um, sexism, racism, all these, all these underlying systems that we live in and feel as, as normative, you can overlay Taoism, you can overlay Buddhism, but if you're not dealing with what's underlying those systems, it's like that the systems will be perpetuated and you can have it to be in a guise of Buddhism. You can have it be in a guise of Taoism. You can have it be in a guise of Christianity or whatever of your choosing. Mm -hmm. Any of those traditions can be co-opted. So it is really important for us to do our internal work as individuals, Mm -hmm. our interpersonal work in relationship, our Sangha work, our community work and societal work to really understand the true nature of things and to understand and not take for granted that this is the only way of operating. So when we see Taoism and Buddhism, for example, martial arts as well, any number of things um, being brought into Western white body dominated spaces and communities is really important for us to understand to reckon with and introspect what our motivations really are. What is it that we're really trying to do? And how can we give back to those traditions, not just with name dropping, not just with like using so-and-so's lineage and name um, to buff my own credentials so that I can feel more important. But it's like, how did you know your spiritual ancestors as people living in a culture, in a time, in a context that had specific challenges for them to evolve the indigenous religions that they inherited into their interpretation of being and how that relevancy got passed down through the lineages. Mm. So, Right. So um, in, I think it's really important to attribute. That's very important. But I think it's even more important to understand the cultural context. And I, I, I really believe that reciprocity and stewardship should be our role, mm-hmm. including my own. Even though I look like this, you know, from a, you know, a non-Asian perspective, it may look like I have more authority to carry on a certain tradition than maybe that I do. Because I would mm-hmm. say that even in China today, the temples of my tradition are being appropriated by 
the government for mm. tourism and capitalist and monetary gain. Mm. So that is, you know, just think about that for a moment, you know. Um, yeah. So um, the, even within the indigenous lands that those cultures can still be appropriated and mm. extracted for capitalistic gain or for mm. colonistic gain or for just authoritarian power gain, mm. right? So, for example, in my lineage, my teacher, Wudang Chen, lived in a time during um, the communist era and through the Cultural Revolution where religion was illegal. Why was religion illegal, including mm. the indigenous region, the indigenous religion of the region, Taoism? Why were he and his teacher refugees in their own country? Mm. Right? Why are religious leaders in Myanmar refugees in their own country right there's there's power you know when there's a where there's a fight over power you know religion gets caught up in the mix so to think that religion is not political or doesn't have political power doesn't have a political responsibility mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. a false notion yeah. so yeah. when we ignore that to try and get away from the ugliness or the complexity of things that are ground level street level um, relational, relative, nitty-gritty dirtiness, mm-hmm. you know, so that we can feel more pure as an individual, it's, that is not the nature of reality, mm-hmm. right? That is um, denying the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yes, we could talk so long about this, and, and I know we, I want to leave a little time for questions, but I wanted to see if we can just tie this back into the practice a little bit, which is, you know, because I think we think all the time at Brooklyn Zen Center about these questions and how we're doing what we're doing, what we need to do and how we need to do it in order to, um, I would say, you know, repair and be in in just relationship, right, Mm. to this tradition. So I'm wondering, you know, what does it look, what what is your practice you know, individually, collectively, of of uh, uh, what? Do, how do you see it as a support for this with this work about justice and equity and you mm-hmm. know peacemaking? Um, and how does a you know how does a movement practice kind of attend to that or help respond to that? Yeah, an embodied practice uh, like Tai Chi and Qigong, because that's my reference point. There's many other practices, but being a um, a moving meditation. We often, there are many ways for us to understand and feel and remember our center, mm-hmm. our grounded center, ourselves, our, um, our, our authentic beings. Mm-hmm. So we often can't just uh, think our ways there. If you have like a strong emotion arise, you often just can't think it away. There's, there's other things at work, right? Your whole body mm-hmm. is in a chemical explosion. You know, your adrenal cortisol levels start to get heightened. You start to feel things in your body that signal you to, um, that something has happened, that you're being triggered or a charge is being raised. And so I think that with Tai Chi and Qigong, that that it is both uh, mental, emotional, spiritual, but also a physical activity Mm -hmm. so that we can know our 
bodily selves and develop and get to know our somatic wisdom that is already embedded in our flesh, mm-hmm. that we have a natural design. And that design supports our homeostasis, which is, again, it's um, that term, I guess, is somewhat problematic because of the word stasis, but mm-hmm. that the, it is a dynamic balance that we are constantly mm-hmm. returning to. And so sometimes if you're an emotionally charged, charged moment, that um, if we have a physical path back to feeling our center, it can keep us in our seat. It can mm-hmm. keep us in that discomfort zone enough where we can still feel like ourselves and we can still um, be in the relationship, in the charged relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So having a difficult conversation may not feel safe, mm-hmm. right? You could feel really unsafe in a difficult conversation or even confrontation but if you have a body practice that helps you understand that breathing helps you that standing Mm -hmm. with both feet on the ground versus leaning to one side that breathing into your belly versus breathing into your chest can help Mm -hmm. you feel more grounded and centered Mm -hmm. that these pathways are the practices done previous to the event right yeah So those grooves are being uh, familiarized and strengthened Mm. so that Mm. your path home to yourself is really, uh, is, is very familiar, Mm -hmm. is very familiar. And so it's um, an activity. mm -hmm. Yeah, go Mm -hmm, ahead. mm -hmm. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I was just thinking, you know, that there, there is so much charge, not just from the current experience, right, but from intergenerational trauma, right? Mm -hmm. The amount of trauma that's housed in our bodies through centuries really you know so this the and sometimes I believe sitting meditation is not enough you know and uh, in our undoing uh, uh, whiteness groups we just kind of intuitively came upon how important it is to move to dance to that soul nerve to kind of release and I was so struck by how much uh, the forms that you offer have so much of this capacity to to gently but you know carefully move uh, look and feel more into your breath into this subtle movement it's very gentle it's nonviolent, and yet it, it has a capacity right there's a there's a precision to it and and a way in which you talk about movement and that can help us m- make more contact with those block areas and also release them, but not in a violent way, right? Or not in a very rigid or forced way, just gently. You know, it seems, it's like deceiving, I think sometimes as, as many very deep wise practices are, it looks, can almost look simple on the surface or hardly anything is happening. Yet something is profoundly getting reharmonized or balanced or let go of or released you know through those yeah moments. i mean it, it can be rather simple on the surface i'm just like raising and lowering my arms <laughs> right what's <laughs> so, the big deal <laughs> I, i'm just sitting on a cushion what's the big right. deal about that very simple right the instruction is yeah. very simple but like the process the living of it um can get very mm-hmm. complicated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and it's a it can be a beautiful complication and yeah. i would I would not say that violence is um, is void from our practice because martial mm. arts deals with violence 
And Tai Chi mm. is a martial art as well as moving meditation. Mm. And it's not a spiritual journey for everybody. It is in my tradition, mm. but it's not for everybody. Right. So um, mm-hmm. violence occurs. You look into nature, you know, just the hummingbird chasing the other hummingbird or the, the bird chasing the fly, you know, the cat chasing the bumblebee. It's like there's violence mm. there. So violence happens. So how are we going to deal with that within ourselves? So conflict and confrontation, you can't avoid it because sometimes we can't avoid it. Yeah. You know, then how do we deal with that? I was just listening to uh, a teacher in this area named Kazuhaga. He's a, um, a student of Kingian nonviolence, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King's mm-hmm. um, philosophy of uh, nonviolence. And he says that the notion of nonviolence as not participating in violence Mm. is is a really deep misunderstanding of Kingian mm. nonviolence. Mm. Because if you look at the actions of what he led, the actions that he led towards civil rights, there was a lot of violence that occurred. So violence is not just the non-participation in violence, mm-hmm. but the practice of nonviolence would be the dedication and the loyalty, your purpose in your practice towards like a systemic peacemaking, mm. a systemic nonviolence. We live in, a, in systems of inherent violence mm. and inequity and injustice. Oppression is violent. So we're living like in this normative world where oppression is is there is it's we're swimming in it so if we are to be peacemakers in the world and we are changing our north star of how we want to see the world to be that our loyalty is towards nonviolence and peacemaking but that on the ground level Mm -hmm. and in interactions sometimes there may be violence Right, right. Yeah, one of the ways I think about it, yeah, thank you so much for making that point. It's such an important point. And it's, and again, it has so many shoots. And, but can I just, so uh, sorry, can I just yeah, finish sure, the yeah, like, Oh, for, I'm sorry, excuse me. No, sorry. no, no, I, I just, uh, I want to get back to what you were just wanting to say. Don't forget it. But like, for example, when I see images if, of my, uh, of, of elder Asian Americans, being brutalized on the street just like for walking down the street from one place or another and and i refuse to partake in violence you know like is that the most skillful means Mm. like would i want to insert myself to prevent more violence from happening to my granny my auntie who's being brutalized on the street, would I want to insert myself, even if it may look violent, you could see that I'm promoting violence in that moment. Would that be the most skillful means, even though violence is being used? But violence isn't my purpose. Peacemaking is my purpose. It's my meta-purpose, right? So that's, I just wanted to inter- no, 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 include I, that example. Yeah. Sorry, let's go back to what you were about. No, 
no, no, I'm, I'm just taking in what you said, right? It's, it's, you know, I, I feel it. I feel what you just said. So I was just taking a moment. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things um, that is so interesting to me about this question about how to respond to harm, you know, and our vow of non-harm. So I guess I'm distinguishing a little bit between violence and a vow of non-harm, which sometimes means to, end, to respond to harm means to put yourself in harm's way, right? Or to, or to so I, I think about in Gestalt, we talk about aggression is not a bad thing. It, it's a response to something happening in the environment or response for, of a protection or a need to get something <laughs> that you need. Mm -hmm. And I remember Reb once said, you know, how, you know, what do you do if you see somebody being very violent? You know, I mean, being very aggressive and, you know, you don't want to be harmful. He's like, I, you know, just throw yourself on them, right? Go towards it and do what you can to respond so that that harm no longer continues. You know, I, I guess that's, I guess that's the frame I'm thinking about, you know, when I talk about non, like violence versus non-harm, you know, harming, but you're yeah. right, you know, that I there is endless examples of like choices that you could make in that moment, but like right. you yeah. yourself just sitting passively by mm -hmm. what, and allowing the violence to happen, what is doing more harm? Yes. Yeah. Right? So this is yeah. like part of bystander training or how do we be an ally when there's harm being done and mm -hmm. it's not to you directly it's like what is your responsibility in that moment right mm -hmm. is, is it just to stand by and, and feel nonviolent and be passive mm -hmm. or do you take a stand and take a risk you know you could be at risk you could be harmed mm -hmm. right this but feels like it goes back to that to? Yes, sorry. <laughs> I get excited when you talk. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm interrupting you, but I, I it's my Italian part. I'm just like, oh, yes, yes, yes. This is a, <laughs> this is a very, um, it's a very powerful topic. You know, I'm being playful. It's a very painful topic. It, it, it is to me the essence of what we're trying to mm. discover around how we, how we work with, you know, a, um, these histories of violence and their their perpetration, continual mm -hmm. perpetration on, on our own bodies, on bodies of people we, we love. And, um, and I feel like it goes back to this nervous system regulation and the practices of embodiment to go towards violence and, and allow yourself to be one of those people who go and protect your granny, you know, is to, is to kind of go into something that your whole body may be saying run away from. But yeah. if you're trained, if your nervous system is trained and you're not moving into this thought, fight, flight, freeze thing, you have the capacity then to protect your loved ones, right? Or yeah, to yeah. Say no to harm. And the practice is done like many, many times before that moment. It's so essential, like Rezma Menachem was saying, that you get those reps mm -hmm. so that it yeah. becomes like more familiar what you may have to do in the moment because if you become equally... Uh, feral and animalistic mm -hmm. in that moment mm -hmm. to take revenge upon the perpetrator then it's like are you still committed to peacemaking yeah, right? yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. so yeah. you have to find a way to cultivate your connection with your center even in highly charged moments that may contain violence yeah 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 
so, so here that's we why are. these practices are so essential, right? They're so yeah. essential. Yeah. They're so essential for uh, changing who we are and how we interact in the world and how our communities interact in our world. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you named community because that second piece, right? We can do these cultivation practices on our own, but how do we create a sangha, you know, a somatic abolitionist sangha, as Resma says, you know, as a sangha that is truly anti-racist or anti-patriarchal. Yeah. I don't think we can do it alone, personally. We can't do it alone. We can't. Yeah, right? I, I think it's incomplete if we think that we're, we can do it on our own for our own selfish achievement. Mm-hmm, it becomes mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. else. So I can't believe it's 12 o'clock, but it is. And um, we're supposed to end at 12. I do want to stay, offer a few minutes for um, questions. I understand our Tenzo and maybe some of the monks have to finish our lunch. <laughs> um, so maybe we'll end there. Um, Sally, I feel especially what got brought up at the end and the way you described how to um, meet life you know uh in this particular way uh in which you are um using these principles and this philosophy to help to create a a a non-harming more peaceful society right there's so much there i'd love for you to come back and talk more about that and um and support our community in that way who i know all really sincerely trying to learn how to navigate this um, but I just wanted to thank you again for for being here and um, and um, for everything that you have to offer. And I hope um, we have many more opportunities to practice together and practice in community together. Uh, so thank you so much. And thank I you. I'm so <laughs> I'm so grateful for this uh, opportunity and connection. And um, it's wonderful to. Um, have this conversation with you and I hope some of you would be able to join in our um, our class in Master Li's Qigong. Master Li was my um, matriarchal ancestor so she's my grand sifu and she was a she was a great beloved um, Taoist priestess from Wudang Mountain where my tradition comes from mm-hmm. and she had many many students including my teacher Wudang Chen and she lived about a hundred or so years. So she saw a lot of turmoil and change in China mm-hmm. during that time. And she created this form as kind of a culmination of her lifelong dedication to internal alchemy and Taoism. So it's very gentle. It's, it's very appropriate for beginners to intermediate to experience levels. And it's a wonderful foundational form that you can really take with you anywhere. It can keep on teaching you. I've, I've, know, I've learned it and continue to practice, and it continues to teach me as I practice. Um, there's, no, there's no end to, to the well um, of wisdom it, uh, it can offer. So I really encourage you to, um, to join us if you, if you can, and we will make the recordings and replays available for you for the entire week so you can review. And maybe I'll see some of you there. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. 
For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.